Hello. Welcome to SITREP. SITREP, your defence and foreign affairs magazine from BFBS Radio. I'm Christopher Lee. Now, this week, why more are saying troops out? China, not ready for superpower ping-pong, but peacekeeping, they like. Berlin, the day the war came down, were we really free? Poppies, homegrown but cultivated in Afghanistan. And it's November the 5th. Who should we chuck on the bonfire tonight? Actually, email your candidates now to sitrep at bfbs.com. Who are you going to put on the bonfire? Try us now. Sitrep at bfbs.com. We're going to start somewhere that people don't often imagine we're going to be going to, and that is India and Maoists. Um, It's another form of terrorism going on, the sort of terrorism that's going on perhaps in Pakistan and Afghanistan is actually going on in India. Maoists actually put... IEDs down every day of the week, and they're effective. Why is it important to us? The man to tell us, Dr. Martin McCauley here from University mm-hmm. College London. Martin, there is a red corridor, yes? Yes, uh, stretching from West Bengal in the north d- almost down to the south. And uh, according to Mohammed Singh, the Indian Prime Minister, the Maoists now are the greatest single threat to Indian uh, security. And uh, you can go back 30 years, 40 years, and they broke off from the Communist Party of India, Marxist Leninist, formed the Maoist group. Why? Because they thought that the uh, the uh, communists were pussycats. They wanted action, they wanted violence. They're inspired by Mao Zedong. You go into rural areas, kill the landlords, uh, uh, transfer the land to the peasants, set up your own organizations, and then gradually move into the cities and use violence. Uh, to undermine the willpower, sap the willpower uh, of the existing administration. Presumably it's important because we have to understand the internal preoccupations of all countries in, in, that, in that region uh, before we wonder why they're not helping sort out our problems as we see them in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Yes, because they, they apparently have bases. They, they go into Bangladesh. The Communist Party uh, of Nepal, Maoist, was in power. We don't know the relationship between the, uh, the, the, these Maoists and uh, the Communist Party of China, but China at present and India uh, are in dispute over their northern frontier, what is called the Tibetan Plateau. And these uh, Maoists are near that area, uh, one, of the, one of the provinces involved. Uh, they claim to be active in 22 states. Uh, and recently, the last couple of months, the Indian Army launched a big... Uh, uh, offensive to root them out. But it's very difficult to do that because they concentrate on rural areas. Uh, they apparently control something like one-fifth of uh, the forests of India. And during the day, they're not to be seen. Uh, and then during the night, they come back and uh, they extract money, they extort money and so on, and build themselves up. And basically, they're there to destroy uh, the Indian uh, administration. Tell me, the they're good in as much that they are effective terrorists, yeah? Um, And I don't say good because we're applauding them. I was picking up some figures, and it showed in the last year they had detonated more than 1,000 IEDs, uh, and some of that expertise had gone, of course, into Taliban. Yes, and we don't know the links. The Indian Security Service, Indian intelligence, only reports certain things. 
uh, and the state is a great is a great threat and all the rest. They don't reveal who's training these people. They say money's coming in. These these uh, there's supposed to be something like twenty thousand Naxalites. They're very often called Naxalites or Maoists. There's something like twenty thousand who apparently are well armed and well trained. Uh, the Indian security services don't say where they've been. They've been trained, and presumably because of what they're doing, they must be linked to Kashmir and Pakistan and Afghanistan. Right. Um, this disturbance thing spreads almost everywhere we look. We have an interest. I've um, just been joined from Chatham House, the head of the think tank's Middle East program, Dr. Claire Spencer. I'm thinking, of course, in Tehran. I'm sort of puzzled still about this opposition that's taken to the streets in Tehran uh, this week, especially yesterday. They're not trying to unseat um, the whole revolution, are they? It's a question of not liking the guys that are running it. No, we're talking now about a crisis of authority and leadership uh, of an establishment that's been deeply divided and it's a way of demonstrating that the wounds have been healed as we've seen. It's not just the demonstrations, it's the push by Mehdi Karoubi to make sure that there is some uh, redress of the allegations of torture, which he says very loudly and clearly, which is why he's now being targeted. Um, is he under house arrest or something? No, well, I mean, prison. he was apparently at the demonstration yesterday and got knocked down, as, as his son said. He, I mean, he's OK, but he was out there, as were the other you know, the other leaders of, of what was then called the Green Revolution in June. They took advantage of yesterday the, the, as being the 30th anniversary of the siege of the uh, American embassy, which was then taken over for a long period of time uh, in Tehran, which is usually, and every year it's an annual event, it's orchestrated by the government to shout death to America. They set up shop a half a mile away to shout death to the dictators. Do they mean it? Well, it's a way of saying these people do not represent us. You know, at one and the same time, the same government, Ahmadinejad, backed by Khamenei, is at least in principle negotiating with the US and yet orchestrates <clears throat> these demonstrations every year to say death to the US. Things have changed and what they are trying to say is we want Iran to be represented in a different way internationally, that this negative isolationist stance which Ahmadinejad has adopted and continues in fact to make worse uh, is not something which represents them. So it's not against the system, it's against who controls the system, what the system, what the revolution of 30 years ago actually represents, the moral values underlying it and this is what Karubi is in a very strong position given that he's you know, a close associate mm. of the, the original Ayatollah Khomeini um, he is something that represents the origins of the revolution. So it's a reclaiming of the essence, the spirit of it, rather than, as you suggest, a, a contest against the very nature of it. It's not, it's not a move towards democracy and dismantling the Islamic revolution at all. There's another side of this, isn't there, that, that a lot of people that are on the streets, they're young, they're well-educated, yeah. and they're out of work. Yes, well, the economic price that's being paid by Ahmadinejad's policy has not only been international sanctions, which despite there being not so much an official freeze, a, a slowdown on them uh, for the time being, has actually led to high unemployment, mostly because of the wastage of the oil revenues internally. Ahmadinejad has not used uh, the money wisely for investment. They've not developed the gas sector of, uh, of Iran's hydrocarbons. They're lagging behind, and they want some a government which actually responds to their needs and requirements, and, and Ahmadinejad doesn't. Martin Apparently, yes, they, they bust in supporters from outside. Does that mean to say no, the that government did? The government did. Does that mean to say that Ahmadinejad has lost Tehran? 
Well, what they do is every time there's disturbances like this, I mean, it's all carefully planned through opposition websites and, you know, the, obviously some sense of this happening is that they call up uh, reservist militias uh, as, uh, associated with the Revolutionary Guards and these are the ones that go around on motorbikes with baton uh, hitting people. This time, though, interestingly, it wasn't major thousands of people. It was a symbolic two or 3,000, certainly students were counted. I think a lot of this is eyewitness accounts, but it wasn't as large as June. But interestingly, to disperse the crowds, they shot into the air. They didn't shoot into the crowd. So there were, there were, as far as I know, there weren't any casualties yesterday, which is an improvement, if you like. But it's, it's, it's a way of saying we're still here and we're going to take advantage of official events to demonstrate our disapproval. OK, I want to talk about China now. Um, and there is a sort of connection. <laughs> this time next week, President Obama will be on his way to China. I mean, he's continuing, a, I suppose, a US-China diplomacy that started with the so-called ping-pong diplomacy inspired by the late President Richard M. Nixon and Henry Kissinger in 1971. On the line is China analyst Andrew Small of the German Marshall Fund. Um, Andrew, China is a bursting economy, or so we think. It still has its own internal problems, though. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's it, it's external um, externally seen as as this tremendously powerful success story economically. Um, internally, uh, the top people in the party um, are extremely anxious about um, the internal political um, situation. Um, some of uh, the situation in Xinjiang is, is is still very difficult. The situation in in Tibet is is still difficult. Um, so there there is still uh, a, a sense among among many there that there's, there's a lot of internal political problems um, that still need to be uh, still need to be resolved. Let, let alone um, talking about um, issues of broader political reform. See, I was trying to make the connection, not very well, perhaps, with President Obama's in uh, saying, you know, we'll talk to Iran or talk to China. And there are a lot of people in Washington who say, why are we going to talk to China? I wonder if China's ready for this sort of uh, big sort of diplomatic hug-in. I, th I think in lots of respects, um, there's much more continuity on Obama policy on, on China than there is, say, on, 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 on Iran, um, except for a very short period after, um, uh, after Tiananmen Square. Um, there's been a, a fair level of continuity in, in the U.S. engagement um, policy, um, and, and certainly even under, under George Bush, um, which, which came into office um, expecting to pursue a much tougher line, um, it crumbled pretty quickly. Quickly, and, and a lot of the um, structures of, of, of engagement and, and high-level bilateral meetings and things that, have, have, um, that, that Obama and the new administration have been able to slot into um, were actually put in place by his, his predecessor. Um, so I think for, for him and for the, for the Chinese, um, this, a lot of this is business as usual. I, I was looking at some figures this week. I thought they were, rather, well, they were to me rather surprising. I hadn't realised how big a contributor to to peacekeeping operations China is? It's, it's a reasonable-sized contributor. Um, I mean, putting it in, in some sort of scale, um, it, it's often said that China is the largest contributor from, from among the, the, the P5, um, uh, but obviously that's because a lot of the rest of them have, have large numbers of, uh, of forces deployed other, other, under other mandates, such as NATO and the EU. Um, when you look at China in comparison with a lot of other countries in, in the developing world, um, it's, it's, it's a reasonable um, number. But for instance, Rwanda, say, has one and a half times as many people, something like that. Um, uh, and the other major South Asian 
nations, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India have, have four or five times um, the numbers. Um, so it, it's a reasonable number and it's growing. Um, but when you when you look at the comparisons, it's it, it's still it's still relatively modest. Um, the interesting thing. Um, is, is the fact that um, it is a relatively new phenomenon, um, the numbers are increasing, um, and the potential for growth is, is much greater than for, for, for a lot of other countries. So um, it's, it's an interesting area to watch, certainly. Andrew, Andrew Small, thank you very much indeed. And now to another Andrew, Andrew North, a BBC correspondent in Kabul. Um, Andrew, um, everybody... Uh, well, all the newspapers in, in, in London at the moment, as you probably have heard, uh, they're all questioning uh, the future of the British deployment in Afghanistan. Uh, that's not an issue in Afghanistan, is it? Well, I, I, I don't know. I think uh, certainly the whole uh, deployment, uh, not just of the British, but uh, all foreign forces here, has certainly uh, is now under question uh, a lot more than it used to be. Uh, Afghans uh, themselves have got uh, very disillusioned with the way things have gone eight years since the ousting of the Taliban. Um, and then there is also um, growing frustration within the international community here at the performance of, of the Afghan government. Um, and in fact, we heard today from the United Nations uh, envoy here who was saying that uh, continued Western support uh, for the Afghan government you know, they cannot count on it unless the Afghan government makes uh, serious efforts to reform, uh, particularly on areas like uh, corruption and just simply making the government more effective. So um, things in lots of ways really do seem to be coming to a head. This idea of reforming, um, say, corruption, um, I mean, when you see the difficulties, I'm not suggesting they're corrupt, but the, the difficulties of trying to sort out the expenses of... Uh, uh, of, of British MPs in, in a democratic centre like Parliament. And it's almost an impossible task, really, without some, some uh, general public feeling against it. In Afghanistan, there wouldn't be such a feeling that, you know, it's all corrupt, let's change it, would it? Well, um, the, I can tell you certainly plenty of Afghans themselves uh, were often complain about corruption, uh, but uh, it's true that they're also quite... <laughs> Yeah, that's right. But uh, they're also quite cynical about it because they, they've kind of come to expect it as part of, of daily life. Uh, and particularly you hear many complaints of just about the police force um, that uh, they routinely take bribes. But also they feel that that's, this goes all the way to the top. Um, <laughs> On the other hand, uh, yes, you're right, uh, it's, uh, it's quite easy to, to lecture places like Afghanistan, but uh, there's corruption all over the place. But there is no doubt that this is going to be uh, an issue by which the, the Afghan government is judged now in the, in the years to come. Are we anywhere near today of um, making the link with Taliban and the person that shot the servicemen? Uh, at the moment, not, and British forces in, in Helmand are still searching for uh, the man, uh, for this policeman. They know his name is Gold Budin, but so far there's no indication of, of where he's gone. Um, yes, there are, uh, they are looking into the possibility he had links with the Taliban, but there are also um, some suggestions we heard that uh, his, his attack, his opening fire on the British troops, uh, followed some kind of dispute with his commander. So we'll have to wait for details on that, but also what we have heard, in fact, just in the last few minutes, uh, is a sad news that another British soldier has been killed uh, down in, in Helmand. Uh, this happened today uh, after an explosion near Sangin, an area 
that's seen quite a lot of fighting in the past, and that brings to 230, the, the number killed uh, since British forces came here in 2001. Andrew North, BBC in Kabul. Thank you very much indeed. Um, it is not, uh, un- it's not unlikely, is it, Martin, that you would get this troops out sort of uh, feeling. It's, it, historically certainly in the 20th century, historically, that was always the cry after such an incident. Yes, and uh, I think it shocked everyone. And it's very important that uh, it, it uh, in fact, concerns the national police because apparently morale is very weak among them and it's monitoring so you, the, the British troops actually live with them and so on. Uh, and uh, apparently one quarter of the police uh, just give up after a year. They're very badly paid and so on. But if you look at the army, the National Army... if you if well, Apparently you, Taliban are better pairs than the police. Yes. Yeah. And if you look at the National Army, uh, the morale is much higher and the, the results are much more positive. So therefore, if you're going to, it's, it's difficult for me to understand why you underpay police because police are the first step. They're the first people you meet and so on. And if you're going to control, if you're going to have security, the police are the first stage uh, and the second stage are the military. Uh, but for some reason, they're underpaid, undertrained and are disaffected and so on. Uh, and this will lead now in this country almost certainly to the feeling that we have to set a date because the Netherlands and Canada have set a, da- a date. We're leaving on that date. It's up to the Afghans to be trained. If they're not trained by them, we're leaving. It's not going to work, is it, Claire? Well, I think the, the, the problem is much larger. We haven't really articulated a strategy that anyone really buys into. And only Obama can do that for well, us. Well, and exactly, and we're still waiting on Obama's verdict on what strategy he's going to follow and whether he increases troop numbers and, if so, what for and what sort of end game. So all that's still up in the air. I think in this particular situation, it's, is it not reminiscent of a similar incident that took place in Basra? Do you remember mm. there was yes. some, uh, some uh, I think it was uh, Royal Military Police. The Royal Military Police in a police exactly. station, and then they were attacked. And, and I think sometimes it's easy to generalise by, I think the fear being expressed here is, oh, you know, if one guy's done this, what's going to stop everybody else? But it could also be associated with the fact that uh, the police were quickly recruited before the, the elections. They were trying to sort of push them through faster. And this may be one person who's just lost his cool for whatever reason and has, you know, f- and I'm sure we'll find out eventually when he's, when he's caught. So it might not be a general phenomenon, but obviously it raises the issue of, you know, are we really checking, we collectively, the international community, who's being recruited, to what end? And what do you do about this issue? Then this was also a case, you know, which arose in, in Iraq, is that they have the day job which is paid for by the international community and then the night job for whichever militia, and in this case the Taliban or others, uh, will be paying them at night. Where is their loyalty? It's clearly not to the same degree as you find in the army to the state. Right. Um, I want to try something else now, which is um, we're sort of dodging around on things that produce instability. Uh, I want to talk about global warming because this week, after the comparative failure of the EU heads of state to do anything about more than mouth a wishy-washy statement on climate change, um, there's been warnings from institutions and scientific bodies that climate change is not simply an economic and social phenomenon. It has a potentially huge consequence for global security. And this is the view of Professor Paul Rogers of the University of Bradford, one of the first defence analysts to warn about the security implications of climate change. Paul, explain this, will you? Well, the essential thing is, Chris, that there's now abundant evidence that the way the planet is going to change is going to be very asymmetric. And to cut a long story short, it now looks like if there is, for example, 
a three degrees centigrade rise in temperature overall. That could be as much as 10 or 11 degrees centigrade rise over Amazonia and much of the tropics, and a far smaller rise over the South Pole and the oceans. The North Pole and the northern latitudes would also go up a lot. There's a lot of indication that there's going to be huge changes in rainfall distribution. To put it bluntly, the tropics and subtropics where most people live are going to get much hotter and they're going to dry out. Um, That, if it happens, if it's not avoided, has huge consequences because in environmental terms, it means the ecological carrying capacity of the land declines. You can't grow the food. And basically, the majority of the world's people get into very serious trouble. Mass migration on a scale we've never seen before. The risk of failed and failing state. And in a sense, the risk of really radical movements arising as well. None of this has to happen. Uh, We can get a grip on it, uh, but it means that moving to low-carbon economies actually has a very big security dimension. And the the idea of uh, failing states, states that... At the moment, we say, well, we're in, in difficulties, but they're not failing states. They're, they're states that can be helped in other ways. But with what you're expressing is the idea that climate change could put them out or beyond the reach of the normal help that, as we understand it at the moment. Yes, and these could be major states. I mean, one to watch, for example, would be Mexico. Uh, with a population heading towards 100 million, largely self-sufficient in grain production, its oil reserves are declining. If Mexico found that there was a massive change in its climate in as little as 30 years, then the consequences for the United States, for example, could be immense. Um, The Chinese, I think, now recognize that they could be extremely badly hit by climate change, which is one of the reasons why they're actually really rethinking their whole attitude and are starting to invest very heavily in things like solar and wind power. It's in the early stages yet, but that, I think, is critical. But another example would be very major changes in the capacity of a very large country such as Indonesia or indeed the Philippines to sustain themselves. That would have huge implications for the Australians, for example. It's interesting, isn't it? We we, we say, look, 30 years, that's pretty close. Um, I mean, somebody joining the army, for example, now might still be in the army in 30 years' time. But uh, on any career, young men coming out of the universities. Now, listen, um, but it ain't sort of just 30 years is up, right, it's all going to happen. It'll be, the, the destabilizing will be happening gradually, it will be happening anyway. And so we actually don't have sort of 30 years to sort it. We've got far less than that. That's the key thing. There is actually a possibility that we won't get much warming in the next five years because there are natural cycles which interact with the human-induced ones. But from five to ten years from now, things will go up very quickly. The, the real problem is that if you see it from a security perspective that we must keep the country safe, that's too short-sighted because eventually if things get completely out of hand, we live in a globalized world and nobody is safe. And I think, curiously, one of the roles for the military is going to have to be to say to the politicians, you've got to be serious about long-term um, conflict prevention caused by co- conflicts caused by climate change. And in fact, it is a security issue to move rapidly to a low-carbon economy in the next five to ten years because we as the military in 30 years' time won't be able to keep you safe if you don't do that soon. Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed. Um, Let's go to the Berlin Wall. On November the 9th in 1989, I was in Berlin... Or West Berlin. What are you doing for? Or I think I never went anywhere. I was in West Berlin and East Berlin that day. Right. Okay. Well, we're all there. Um, So was, so was uh, BFBS and SITREP correspondent Jamie Gordon. And 
unlike us sitting here in the studio, Jamie's in uh, at the Berlin Wall, or where was the Berlin Wall even now? Uh, whereabouts are you, Jamie? Um, to be honest, I'm on Bundesallee. We've just got oh. from the airport, so when it's, uh, we're just trying to find the hotel, but we are in the midst of uh, a city I've spent four years living in. Yeah. Uh, where were you then? Um, on the night before, I was actually on BFBS radio doing um, a late-night programme which finished at midnight, and, and there were words, so people were phoning me up, so there was something going on at the wall. But I really wasn't in much of a position to, to say anything about it because I, I had, you know, I couldn't confirm anything. So I, I guess I thought nothing of it. And uh, after the program, after the program, yeah, late in the morning, uh, I had um, a colleague of mine in my bedroom in my mum and dad's house saying, "Get up, you're doing the lunchtime show because the walls falling down." So I kind of slept through a little bit of it, but I did get the first inklings of it. Jamie Gordon, you slept through history. <laughs> And you're still employed. No, I, I, I tell you what, though, Christopher, I certainly made the most of it after that because you can imagine the city, well, you were here, and yeah. the city just went into meltdown and, and the euphoria was unbelievable. And, of course, my colleagues and, and I were able to report on that for, for our BFBS audience. We had lots of other media agencies coming over to use our studios because, you know, it was quite short notice. Although, mm. you know, there'd been, been that build-up in, in 89 in other parts of the world, when it actually did come down, it caught a few people by surprise. Right. And uh, what are you going to be doing in the next 24 hours? Um, well, we're... Waiting for Monday. Uh, on Monday, we're going to be doing a programme uh, partially from the Allied Museum, um, which you might well remember, um, with Richard Hutchinson presenting now. We've, we're basically looking at, at why the wall existed in the first place, uh, how it came to be, and, and how it came to come down, and I'll also hopefully be reporting from somewhere adjacent to the Brandenburg Gate, which was, you know, the, the symbolic uh, heart of the city where, where the war was and no longer is. And uh, so it'll be three hours of, of trying to tell the story of Berlin past, present and indeed future. Good luck. OK, Jamie Gordon, thank, thank you very much indeed. Um, Martin McCauley, um, you were there. I was there, and uh, we were at a conference in the Reichstag, which, which backs onto the Brandenburger mm. Tour, and its title was 40 Years of a Divided Germany. <laughs> Magnificent. There was the people chipping away at the wall <laughs> as you were talking. I was doing my talk, and in walked the uh, West German uh, Minister for All German Affairs, and she held up her speech, and she said, this is past history, and then she dropped it, and then she starts talking about uh, the unification of Germany. Tell me, um, Claire, I mean... It's, it's easy to sort of say, right, it divided Germany. But in, in, in many ways, it was the symbol mm. of the Cold War. It was the symbol of why we were all waiting for Armageddon. Yes. I mean, it was... Uh, I remember, of course, I was much younger then. I was a student. Uh, but I did have a German friend in Hanover, which is not a million miles away from... I mean, it's a long way from Berlin, but it wasn't far away from, from the, the larger border, not just the, the wall in Berlin. The inner German to, border. Yeah, the inner German border. And you could see, you know, there was a spot you could go to. I forget the name of the village. You could see the village cut in half by this thing. And it's absolutely striking. And I think the symbolism of walls dividing people and the fact that they are not there forever, which is the hope that came out of the fall of the Berlin Wall, is something that very much informs, I think, my generation's look at the wall in Jerusalem and, you know, in the Middle East. Walls may be temporary measures, but they never, ever 
last. You know, even the Great Wall of China is there, but you can climb up on it and over it. This is not a good device for keeping two peoples apart. And the symbolism of that and the, as you say, the euphoria when it fell was something that everybody felt. Very quickly, because we're going to talk about um, Palestine and Israel in in about 20 seconds. There's another wall, isn't there? And it's the one that divides the Palestinians Mm. uh, from the Israelis. That is well. That's a, the one I'm talking about. Yeah, the one, that's the got one the most amazing the, yeah. symbolism. It has. I mean, it's it's absolutely striking when you go there. I mean, of course, if you're looking at it in and around Jerusalem, you can. There's various vantage points you can see it. Well, what I'm saying, it divides the whole Middle East. Yes, it does. And I think it's got the same symbolism when people say, why is it, you know, every Arab state, however, I had an Algerian diplomat yesterday saying to me, until you fix the problem of the Palestinians, we can't take you seriously, you Europeans or Americans on anything else. And that's their biggest disappointment of the Obama presidency so far is that there has been no move and no progress on that that front. Okay. Um, The connection here is that there's been a remarkable, I think, remarkable photographic exhibition just taking place Mm -hmm. here in London at the Blackwell Gallery. Um, the title tells it all, Beware the Cost of War. It is a, photo, a photography exhibition featuring the work of Palestinian and Israeli photojournalists. Now, the director of the exhibition is a scholar with the Olive Tree Programme at City University, Yoav um, Galai. Tell me, how did it come about, this uh, this exhibition? Um, hello. Hello. Uh, the exhibition was just floating around in my head for such a long time. Uh, I was a photojournalist, uh, and I was embedded in the Lebanon War, and uh, I just experienced a very... I just had a very strange experience that my images from there that uh, were very... Sadly, we were uh, attacked, and uh, there were some injuries. They were published very widely, and after it became known that it was friendly fire that caused it, they weren't published anymore, anywhere. And I got to thinking about uh, about captions and about narratives and about well, what, what really, what does it matter really? And uh, when we had a chance of doing that exhibition here in London, I just thought, well, why don't I just apply the same the same idea? The, the idea that uh, maybe captions are not as important to everything, and we just. Uh, I tried reaching out to, I reached out to photographers in Gaza and in the West Bank, and surprisingly got a, a very, very good response. Uh, we had uh, seven Palestinian photographers and seven Israeli photographers who were very eager to participate in this uh, exhibition together and uh, showing the, the way that conflict really looks close up uh, without focusing too much on um on the, well, whose fault is it, or taking it into that, uh, you know, keeping scores. Um, and um, photographers were very, very eager to, to participate in them, to send these images that were always a bit too much to uh, to publish. And uh, that, that, that's how it came about, Chris. Tell me something. Um the idea of um, Palestinian photographers and Israeli photographers, um, there is a similarity here, isn't there, uh, with the uh, classical pianist, the concert pianist and conductor, Daniel Barenboim, who has tried to bring um, people from these two different persuasions together to show that you can actually make something rather beautiful and something to talk about. 
Well, I'm not sure what we bring about. It's so beautiful. Uh, but there is, yes, because uh, it's professionals who do basically the same things and who sometimes work for the same agencies, then the connection is already there. People know each other at least by name and certainly by the photograph that they've taken. And uh, so it, it wasn't that as hard of bringing us all together because as photographers, we, we are already kind of connected. Okay. Where can uh, we see this uh, now? Uh, presumably, if we open the laptop, we'll find it somewhere. Yes. Uh, well, if you go to an online magazine called uh, 100 Eyes, that's 100eyes.org, uh, mm-hmm. there's a special issue devoted entirely to the exhibition. And on our website, there is a video of the hour-long debate uh, chaired by John Snow, with uh, two of the Palestinian photographers and two of the Israeli photographers. And that's on, on our website. That's uh, bewarethecostofwar.org. Okay, let's go and look at it. Many thanks indeed. Thank you. Now, this Sunday is Remembrance Sunday because it's, because it's the nearest Sunday to the 11th of November that commemorates the armistice that ended the First World War. On the line from the Royal British Legion, Liam Maguire. The public debate, Liam... Uh, and often expressed unease at the moment uh, for the role of British forces in Afghanistan, suggests a particularly sensitive public awareness of Poppy Day this year. Um, yeah, well, I mean, of course, while the Legion would never um, get into the debate about the justifications um, for current operations or the war in Afghanistan, um, the, the current conflict does, of course, mean that um, more younger men and women are, are relying on the Legion's support um, which, which makes this, this year's poppy appeal, you know, more, more important than ever. Um, you know, in, indeed, the, um, the, the theme of this year's appeal is very much about helping the Afghan generation of the armed forces, um, their families, now and for the rest of their lives. Tell me, I mean, I've, I've, I sense that there are more, um, more poppy cans around uh, certainly London and the home counties. Um, you've got more collectors out? Uh, yep, this year is, is a record year in terms of collectors, and we hope it'll be a record year in terms of the amount raised. Of course, last year we, we raised just shy of £31 million. Pounds. What are you going for this year? Well, a, a penny over £31 million, pounds, and I'll be a very happy man indeed. So. I'll do it on the way out of a broadcasting house, I promise you. <laughs> Thank you, Christopher. Um, what do you do with the money? Well, the money um, goes... Um, through uh, well, it's, it's basically spread throughout our, our welfare um, projects, whether that's uh, providing uh, money and loans advice, short business loans, um, direct welfare um, care and assistance, uh, whether that be uh, you know making a, a, a serviceman's house wheelchair friendly, um, or, or sending people on um, on, on breaks, uh, forces families. Um, you know, the, the way that Legion helps is uh, is endless, and it'd be uh, uh, the program I fear is far too short for me to, to go into the depths of everything that we do. But this is very much about the people that are left behind, the families and the and the wounded. Very much so, yeah. Um, it's uh, you, you know the majority of um, the money that Legion's spending at the moment. Um, it's fair to say would probably be on. Um, the Afghan and Iraq generation, um, and their families. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, Neil McGuire, thank you very much for joining us. No um, interesting, um, Claire, 
I sense there are more poppies this year on, on lapels. Yes, and I think people... Well, it seemed to start earlier this year as well. Normally, it's sort of tail end of October. I seem to remember it starting before then. But it, I, I do sense people are very conscious. And there's small things. I was going to the Foreign Office this morning and walked past Horse Guards Parade and was conscious of stopping and, if you like, paying my respects to the Grenadier Guards. Yeah. You know, normally you look at them on their horseback and see them as very ceremonial. I confess I've been reading Patrick Hennessy's <laughs> book, you know, the Junior Officers Book Reading Club, but it, it did make me think twice. And so instead of buying one or two poppies and sort of pinning them on different coats, I'm consciously not doing that and actually buying a new one every day, you know, yeah. when, when, and you do find more of them about. The other thing I just wanted to comment on, on. Is, is, is some private, like some competition, if you like, the Coldstream Guards. I was amazed. I saw a soldier in Trafalgar Square with one of these boxes thinking he was selling poppies. He was selling armbands with uh, in support of the Coldstream Guards in Afghanistan. And again, it was for, um, and I bought one, um, it was for the families and uh, the bereaved families and the wounded. And it is almost as if, well, individual battalions are now collecting for themselves. I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Po- he didn't have a poppy as well? He may well have done, but what he was selling was armbands with Coldstream mm. Guards returned. Tell me, does anybody know why Jon Snow, the Channel 4 um, news presenter, refuses to wear a poppy? He refuses? I have no idea. Is he a pacifist? I don't know. I don't know. Just a thought. Just a thought. Um, uh, He does in private, but not in public, I'm Mm. told. Um, But I I just wondered about that because he was chairing that debate that we heard about earlier about the, uh, you know, the beware the cost of war. Mm. Uh, Anyway. I was there, actually. It was a very interesting debate. Yeah. Um, You're still listening? To, uh, to sit right here. And it is, gosh, it's, we're very late. It's 37 <laughs> minutes past the hour. With me from Chatham House, the head of the Middle East programme, Dr Claire Spencer, and from University College London, Dr Martin McCauley. Can we, can we sort of drift into um, talking about, again, talking about Afghanistan? Um, we can't walk out, can we, uh, <clears throat> on the Americans? That would completely change... Uh, Claire, that would completely change the whole transatlantic relationship, wouldn't it? Well, I think, you know, the devil we do, the devil we don't. I think the big fear, and Paddy Ashdown and others have been saying this, is that, you know, worse things lie beyond. The, 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 the sense that this is an unwinnable war, and there are many, more, many people saying this, that, you know, when you're, it's not just asymmetric warfare, it's the nature of the enemy, the opposition, tell, the context. Actually, tell me about asymmetric warfare. What is asymmetric warfare The people who don't know about? Well, it's where you're not standing opposite an identifiable, you know, enemy in like uniforms. Like the Cold War? Yeah, like the Cold War, where it's sort of, you know, standing battles and, you, you know, you shoot till somebody uh, gives in, in, exactly, uh, is defeated, or, you know, you've got an overwhelming victory. Whereas, in fact, um, you know, the situation where you have people hiding and actually double-hatting, in a sense, where they can be working for a militia one minute and working for us the next, you really don't know how big. If anyone says how many Taliban are out there, how long's a piece of string? You know, you might be Taliban one minute and then decide you're going to join, you know, the police force of the army of the next and then go back. I mean, the infiltration issue is critical in this respect and it seems that the police are more effective it's interesting than the also, army. So, Martin, the, it's going back to the police and the people have said, you know, the police are corrupt. Um, to get a job as a chief of police in a district, you buy into it. You fork out 70, 80... Hundred thousand dollars US dollars. You get the job, you get the uniform, and then you start paying ten dollars a day or whatever it is you're going to be, or ten something a day to the to the police. Um, the guy that you're paying 
as your deputy, might be 20,000. But he, he relies on you. So every time he takes a bribe, he has to give you something. That is the level of organised corruption. It is very 18th century UK, isn't it? No, it's not. Well, yes, it's 18th century UK. Well, uh, it wasn't the UK then, but, but you know what I mean. But if you look at the world today, I would say that's quite normal practice. If you look even at the end of the Soviet Union, uh, uh, positions such as party secretary, uh, head of... Uh, Patronage. Patronage and so on, were bought. Party membership was bought. The chief of police, the person who was the minister of internal affairs, the person he was bought. He bought his position and so on. Uh, especially in Central Asia. In other words, if uh, uh, it was more rife there than say in the ethnic Russian areas. But basically, it doesn't surprise me at all because that is in many ways the normal way of running a country. You get somebody uh, who buys a position. And then he is your, if you like, your client. And then he uh, then recruits his agents and they pay him and, and he makes a profit. Isn't, isn't, that's normal. I, you know, I get fanged for this, but, I mean, it is sort of British politics, American politics, isn't it? You make a big donation to the party and you have well, an influence over the way the party goes. The money runs, uh, sorry, the world runs on money. I mean, I was just thinking as you were talking, it sounds a bit like an officer buying a commission. You know, I mean, these systems... All my ancestors, are, the Victorian ancestors. Yeah, exactly. Used to, I don't know army. how much it was, but you've coughed Not up much. and you got, the, you got the status. But it's very true that in tribal societies, things run on largesse. You know, if you're not sitting on the biggest pot of gold or the biggest revenue stream, then you cannot control the people that you would otherwise mm. control. In, in so what I'm saying is that we should not get all sort of screwed up and surprised and say, well, you know, these people are absolutely corrupt. That is, it is no. not, yes, I, it I is not corruptness as we're really talking yes, about. Yes, I wouldn't it. use the word corrupt. Uh, because West, it's a Western word, it's a moral word and so on. We preach, in other words. Yes. It's the way that uh, the vast majority of uh, indigenous society around the world run. If you look at China, <laughs> you look at China, the person, the police chief, is the person who's taking bribes from everyone. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, that's basically normal. But to go back to Obama, I'd like to say that I think that the election of Karzai, the failure of the election of Karzai, may change Obama's view that Karzai is on probation for a few months. If he doesn't think he's going to improve, then he will not put in more troops because it's uh, it will be basically... Yeah, uh, but everybody else is waiting for him to do this. It's not dithering. It's, it's, it's a guy saying, we are in stock here. Yeah. We've yeah. got to Obama, think through a proper... Yeah, Obama doesn't know what to do at present because he's just lost two seats, two elections. And Virginia. A, uh, elections coming up in 2010, he's going to lose those as well. And the will, uh, well, the wave of opposition to Afghanistan in America is growing. And they do not support General McChrystal's view, send another 40,000. Why not 400,000 to Afghanistan? Well, they haven't got them. But, uh, well, but 400,000 yeah, wouldn't solve the problem. Joe Biden is well known for being someone who wants out. The vice so, president. Exactly. Mm. And I think in the context of the two key issues, one is the, the climate debate, which they're having in the US, and also the healthcare issue, money is going to be to the fore. And how much does it cost to keep people in Afghanistan when you don't have a clear strategy and a clear exit strategy? And the US has been there all before when it comes to Iraq. You know, we've had these debates before, these unwinnable wars against mm you know, enemies who can disappear into the night and then reappear suddenly is something which uh, I think the US public are getting very weary of. So there is no strong lobby, if you like, in the US for the, continu the, the continuation of this. Uh, Obama has a great advantage that he didn't get into the war. 
<laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't the president. Yeah, but they're all picking up there. the pieces. You know, you, people forget. You know that you've got to deal with what you're dealing with now. You, do, you, you know, it's very easy to blame Bush, but that will wear a bit thin by the end of this year. Yeah. Well, what the, I think the Americans will do will they will affect it and concentrate on military security and forget about democracy building, and nation building, and all that. You concentrate on uh, and you concentrate more on, on Pakistan. Yeah. Can I just ask you one question, Martin? Um, it's, a, it's a personal question. We were talk, talking to uh, Jamie Gordon about The Wall um, 20 years ago um, on Monday coming down. I mean, you had a, a much more, a, a deeper reason for understanding it, apart from the fact that you lectured there, uh, etc. But it's also family. We had family both in West Berlin and East Berlin. Uh, and I used to go regularly into East Berlin because as a British citizen, uh, you paid 20 marks to get in. You didn't need a visa. So therefore, uh, every time I went to Berlin, I went to see uh, one of the relatives who was a professor at the Humboldt University. And he had a magnificent title, professor of Greek mythology. And he was an SED, a convinced communist and so on. And he, uh, he was a mine of information about, uh, about the GDR. And he said that students came to university, they were schizophrenics. Mm. They knew... What they had to say, but they didn't believe it, and there was something going on in their head, and they, they couldn't put these two things together. And it was his problem, it was his task to bring the two together. But by the early 80s, he told me a story. He said that uh, he used to go into the university on a Saturday morning to do research. He was hauled in by the Stasi, the secret police, and they said, "We've been watching you for some time, and we cannot work out what you're up to." What are you up to? He said, I'm going to the university to do some research. And they would actually not believe that somebody would go into university, mm. do research, and not be paid. Uh, and that turned him round, and then he lost his communism. Uh, and that's, uh, if you'd like, in, uh, uh, really in, in uh, a few sentences, what happened to the GDR, the great idealism of 45, 49 and so on, and uh, we're going to build a new society, a wonderful new socialist, they're based on Marx and all the rest. That is gone by the 1980s, uh, and Sinison took over, uh, and he was like that. People didn't, did, they did the, the minimum amount of work, uh, and uh, you were watched by the Stasi, uh, and you had a private life at home, uh, and you talked privately to them, and then in public you said certain things. Nobody talked to you in East Berlin openly. When the wall came down, everyone talked to me. It was absolutely amazing. It was a family, as if they'd known me for years. They started telling me about their stories. They, it was absolutely transformed. And then we went to uh, see the relatives, uh, and uh, I said that uh, in November 1990, Germany will be reunited. And they couldn't believe it. They thought I was mad because they could not believe that the Communist Party and Stasi would lose power. That, that was so strong in their heads. They could not believe that. So they, on the one hand, you had this enormously strong security, security forces and Communist Party. On the other hand, nobody supported them. But nobody believed they could be overthrown. And the man who overthrew them, of course, was Gorbachev in 1985 when he started Perestroika. And then he got bounced. Yeah. I Claire, just wanted quickly. to say just a very brief word in defence of the, the GDR. What happened afterwards is it's given rise to two of the most splendid films ever. One is Goodbye Lenin and the other one uh, is The Lives of Others, which showed very gradually how the Stasi officer who was listening in a little listening room upstairs uh, above a, a playwright's house gradually, without just the flicker of an eyelid, changed sides. And it was just beautifully done. It's one of the most brilliant films. And I'm sorry it requires dictatorships and 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 uh, brainwashing to get to that but they were absolutely brilliant films and Goodbye Lenin was was a yes. woman who couldn't come to terms 
couldn't come to terms with see, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Where do we see this? Sorry? Where do we see the film? Well, these films, they must be, they're very famous. They did the rounds. I mean, they're about DVD. five, a DVD. So okay. it's Goodbye, Goodbye Lenin, which is a German film. Well, both of them are German films, and they're extremely okay. well done. Watch them. Stasi offers it to be very, very cynical uh, and very clever. Um, one used to come to see me at the University of London uh, and uh, for regular conversations, and he would come through the door and said, Good morning, uh, Professor Macaulay, in English, and then he'd switch into German, sit down, switch into German, and after half an hour and so on, he'd stand up and said, In English, thank you very much, I'll see you soon. In other words, he'd switch on his recorder, and he didn't have to translate what I said to him, <laughs> Uh, he just he, he just he just wrote it out and so on. And uh, uh, he was one of those who was clever, but also totally cynical. Yeah, I had an analyst like that. Okay, uh, while we're in our remembering mood, uh, we've been joined by the author, and um, I was thinking of you, Max Arthur, as an obituary writer. Uh-huh. Uh, no, perhaps I shouldn't. <laughs> anyway, um, the author, Max Arthur, uh, Remembrance Sunday this weekend coming, and you have put up together a book on reflections of service people at the end towards the end of the Great War, and then after. Um, appropriately, it's called We Will Remember Them. I mean, it is perhaps the most devastating war for the people who fought and those who waited uh, in Britain's, Britain's military history, isn't it? Mm, it is, absolutely. I mean, we lost nearly 800,000 men, and the consequences of that upon this country is still very much with us. I was asked last night, you know, where is leadership today? And I said, well, it probably perished on the Western Front. Well, certainly the grandparents. Grandparents, and therefore the genetic chain down, as it were, I think it's somewhat diluted. Tell me about the, um, I mean, the way you selected, because, I mean, you don't, if I may put it this way, you don't interrupt it with narrative. You just have selected letters, newspapers, uh, quotes from people. How did you get the bulk of them are from, from quotes. About 90% of the book has come from quotes. And the bulk of those are from previous interviews I've done over the last 25 years or from the Imperial War Museum. And they have a marvellous archive there of sound archive. And I was the first to dip into it with a book called Forgotten Voices of the Great War and then did Forgotten Voices of the Second World War. And I thought somewhere between the two wars, there's this generation that, that lost its way and was hurt and upset and sad. And how did it get through? And I think this book pretty well covers that. It's probably one of the saddest books I've ever had to write. Except when I, when I came to it, I thought, ah, oh, this is going to be, you know, sort of big gloom, etc. But some of it was actually, I mean, there were... Some of it was very, very funny. I mean, mm. the, the, uh, some of the lines that were, that were written. I mean, there's a, there's a marvellous moment when um, I think a, a private or a corporal sees an officer trying to control his horse, and he says to the officer, this is when the war's still going on, mm. he says to the officer, um, uh, what, what's the matter, sir? And he says, oh, this horse is a bit lively. Get off and I'll sort it. So the, the soldier sorts it. I mean, he, 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 mm. he relaxes a bit. And then after the war with a load of out-of-work soldiers in a park somewhere in London. Right. This guy is this, this bum, almost, yeah. character, who's broke. It's the officer. Hmm. And the soldier, he said, hmm. I remember you. Hmm. I mean, that is an astonishing, astonishing. story. Mm. Astonishing. And the other astonishing thing is the fact that, you know, for the first time we really saw the effects of trauma and there's a marvellous account of the chap who can never sleep and doesn't 
you know, because the disturbances are so great in his mind that he just gets up and leaves his wife sleeping, wanders the streets of London, and he's surrounded by hundreds of other people from the war, walking the streets of London, sleeping on the park benches, and not because they're tramps, because there's a unity in in that sort of sadness and forlornness and the the misery that comes out of being a serving soldier and then coming back to a tranquil world, a gentle world, and and the, what's gone on in their scrambled head is, is it can't be sorted out at home with the wife and the children, and it's not what they want. They they were they were good at fighting and they were good at living with people who were going to die, and then um, suddenly they've got to come back to the wife who you know wants to make the bed and can he help in the garden? Parallels today. Today, very much so, especially after the last killings in, yeah. in Afghanistan. I thought that came across very well indeed. And the parallels came across well, the, the horror of that incident, you know. The irony of it all, the horror, you know, we're out there to serve, we hope, to make life in Afghanistan a better place. I didn't think we were ever in the First World War trying to make the world a better place. We just didn't want the Kaiser running up and down Bognor or Brighton Beach, really. But... Uh, uh, you know, the young men being killed, are, uh, it's never easy to take. You know, these are good lads and are, uh, the sergeant being killed with uh, two kids now for Christmas. It brings back the horror of the First World War and the Second World War. Today, at least, we don't get telegrams. You know, the young chap arriving mm. at 14 years of age with his little cap on to say, here's a telegram, senior. Is it, uh, we, we were talking just before you came in about uh, corruption and I found a letter in there, or, 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 or a report in there. So there's a hotel in London where uh, an officer and people will be found jobs. So the guy goes in and says, can you find me a job, please? And um, they can't find him a job. And he's a bit cynical about that. He said, well, you're supposed to be finding me a job. And the officer storms out. And the assistant says to the bloke, if you'd have bunged him a fiver which in 1918 oh. was a lot of money. If you'd have bunged him a fiver, he'd have got you a good job. Hmm. And this is supposed to be a welfare hmm. society, hmm. sending them off to shipyards which are about to close hmm. in, hmm. Is it new, on the Tyne yep. and in Southampton. And then in Southampton. Totally bogus, all making the money of the colonels and various other officers. And these poor boys lost and disenchanted with it. But I think one of the gem stories to me is the attack in 1916. The battalion goes forward and this is written up in the, the battalion diary. And they come back and there's one bloke there reading a book and he hasn't gone forward. He hasn't heard the whistle, he hasn't heard the command. And they've gone forward, fought this battle all day long and come back into their trenches, you know, semi-victorious. And there he is still reading the book. And last night I was giving a talk and I said, OK, I'll give you a quid to the person who can name the book he was reading. That it was that compelling that, you know, he didn't hear anything and he was so absorbed that even when they came back he didn't want to know about them. He's still engrossed in the book. And... Three three people came up with some ideas. One was the Bible, one was another book. War and Peace. War and Peace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Right. <laughs> and so he was completely exonerated by the uh, by the uh, general in charge of the of the court martial. Oh, I quite understand that. Matt case dismissed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Some of them who just ran away weren't dismissed though. No, they weren't. Yeah, well no. he stayed put, he just didn't go yeah. there. Um can I <sighs> 
try something on, on you, Martin. Historically, I'm not sure we're certain what we should think of this war, the First World War. Nobody yet knows why it broke out. That's the most frightening thing about it. You still don't know why this colossal waste of human life, which changed the world, it, it destroyed Europe. Europe never recovered from it. Uh, and uh, the traumas are still there, as you, as you said. The traumas are still there. And the puzzling thing is we still don't know. Uh, it was the last great non-ideological war. The Second World War was an ideological war between various very strongly held beliefs. Uh, if the, the war in Korea... It was a sort of Victorian war then. Mm. Yes, in which uh, I remember some a Lithuanian... Uh, not personally, but a Lithuanian said in 1941 when, they, when the Germans were advancing, I remember the Germans from 1917. They were very honest uh, and very good gentlemen and so on. You don't have to be afraid of the Germans. Now, 1941 was a totally different German, if you like, a totally different war. Uh, the savagery yeah. of the Second World War was unprecedented probably since the Hundred Years' War. If you met a person, you killed them. Yeah, but Max, there's, there's another uh, piece in, in your book. When we're coming up to the armistice, 11 o'clock, and uh, the officer says to his men, listen, when we get to 11 o'clock, don't simply stand up and shake hands with the opposition, the Germans. If we get them, we make them prisoners of war. They weren't all daft, were they? They weren't. And there was a certain nobility to the end because, as you know, um, at the end at 11 o'clock, the Germans fired off just before a 1,000 rounds of machine gun fire and then exactly at 11 o'clock their officer stood up and took off his helmet and bowed to the British soldiers yeah. and led his men away. Yeah, there was another one there said that the, 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 uh, the British actually fired a... That's right. Fired into them yeah. and killed quite a lot. Yeah. Somebody just trying to make to, a point. A point, yeah. I think the expression was trying to make the last uh, shot of the game. Mm. Listen, talking about last shots, um, we've only got a couple of minutes. It's bonfire night. That's today, right? Guy Fawkes, or his effigy, goes up in smoke tonight throughout England, anyway. In Edenbridge in Kent, I promise you this is true, they're burning a Jordan lookalike. That's Jordan, not as in the Middle East, but as, as Katie Price. Some of you may know her or of her. Um, there's more sinister symbolism, Martin. Lewis in Sussex. Lewis, mm -hmm. uh, the Pope goes, doesn't The Pope he? goes up. He's been going up for quite a few years. Uh, and uh, uh, I suppose that uh, uh, it's... Uh, uh, eventually, they'll say, you can't do that. Um, can mm. they do it for another year and so on? I suppose the, if the Anglo-Catholics move over to uh, the uh, Roman Catholic Church... Uh, there would be a move in Lewis. Can you imagine it? The Pope oh, saying to Guy Fawkes, I haven't seen you at Mass lately. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Edenbridge <laughs> last that. year, they burnt Jonathan mm. Ross and Russell Brand. Yeah, They've yeah. also uh, cindered Cherry Blair, mm. Saddam, John Prescott <laughs> and Edwina Curry. Well, there's quite a mix. Um, d is it, does it actually tell us something about a nation or is it just ordinary fun that we've had for a form. Well, it's clearly the sort of public hate figures of whichever year it was. I mean, I don't think anyone would burn Edwina Curry this year. She's so last year, isn't she? But, you and know, the year before uh, that. I mean, you're looking for volunteers. I mean, I think it's grossly unfair if Cherie Blair's gone up in flames. Tony certainly ought to join her, so that's my nomination. You'd nominate the burning of Tony? Tony Effigy. He's going to be president. Please, I'm, not, I'm not perpetrating oh, any more than Effigy he's burnings. Be, he's not going to be president of Europe now. Not if my French colleagues have anything to do with it. I've right. 
got their assurances on that subject. Jack, any I, thoughts? I would, board, Martin. I would, I would burn Gordon... Uh, hang Gordon. on, hang on. Effigies of, not yeah. the first. <laughs> yes, exactly. Effigies of Gordon Brown. I bet you'd be so scared he'd run back to Scotland. Why? Kick and steal. Why? He's been an absolute disaster as Prime Minister. <laughs> and he's a type well, of Come man. on, let's name some Prime Ministers. You're not <laughs> going to no, burn no. them all. If you listen to him, it's Pangloss. Remember, uh, was it Voltaire's mm. Pangloss? Voltaire, Condide. Yes. Everything, everything is positive. It doesn't matter what's going on. You get Afghanistan. I'm afraid it is. He will then put a Panglossian gloss on it instead of telling you it's a dreadful situation. I think that's unfair. I think it's boring as well. We don't want to burn politicians. After all, who would we fang if we burned politicians? (laughs) Max, you've... You've been through, you, you do I'm too write much a bit pacifist don't you? to burn anyone, really. Come on, tell us. It's an effigy. You wouldn't burn anybody. No, I don't think I would. No. 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 Yeah. Well, I tell you, if anybody is around, uh, uh, where did I say, Lewis tonight? Mm. It's a very dark affair. It's yes. a very dark part of our society, isn't it, mm. Martin? Uh, why should it be dark? It's a bit of fun. Um, the, uh, at that time, the papers. The burnt. Vatican don't think so. Listen, we're going. No, this is getting too scary. <laughs> My thanks to Max, Ar- uh, Max Arthur. The book is We Will Remember Them. 20 quid from Weidenfels. That's not bad, is it? Uh, try the Nafia. Do we do that anymore? No. Also, thank you to you, Martin McCauley, and to Claire Spencer. We'll be back next week. So, for me, Christopher Lee, thank you very much. And, of course, guess what? Mary's in the hut. <laughs>